Well, good morning. It's so good to see all of you this morning. If you're watching online, thank you for taking the time to watch and join us. We know that you're traveling during the summer, and this last week, kind of a summer, is a, a prime time to get away. And uh, we still appreciate you joining us and, and tuning in. We are continuing our sermon series on purpose today. We recognize that we are here for a purpose. It is not on accident that we are here, but there is a very specific purpose that we are here for. And today we're looking at the second chapter of the book of Acts, specifically the very last portion of that. And this is a really important chapter in the Bible. Verses 42 through 47 are particularly important because we see the formation of the early church. We see the first kind of assembly, the first fellowship of believers. And so we're going back to our beginnings, if you will, and we're looking at the purposeful actions and behaviors of early believers. Now, if you have young children, you know that it's exciting to watch young children grow and develop. You know it's fun to watch them choose things to do, figure out what is, what is important and what's not important, to, to make decisions on their own. You also probably know that there's a really fundamental question that children ask during this stage, and that question is, why? All the time, why? Why do I have to go to bed? Why do I have to eat my dinner? For my kids, the question is, why do I have to brush my teeth? When they were little, I used to tell them, because if you don't brush your teeth, your teeth are going to fall out, and you're going to have to have wooden teeth like George Washington. <laughs> They've caught on and realized that that is no longer a dental practice, and so it's not nearly as convincing as it once was. But they ask this question, why? They want to know fundamentally, why do I need to do the things that you're asking me to do? And the truth of the matter is, as we get older, the question of why still remains a significant question for all of us. Whether it's working on a project at home, why does this have to go here? Why do I have to do this first? Or maybe you're trying to solve a problem at work. Maybe you're navigating a conflict in a relationship. To understand the fundamental underlying why can be incredibly beneficial and helpful. And so as we dive into our sermon this morning, I want to ask a question of you. I want to leave you with a question just to kind of ruminate over and think about throughout the course of this message. And the question is this, why do you follow Jesus? Or why are you considering following Jesus? As we go through the message, the sermon this morning, I want you to kind of be thinking about that question. Why do you follow Jesus? Or why are you here possibly considering this idea of following Jesus? As we look at Acts 2, uh, 42 through 47 this morning, I want you to consider this question because this is a question that the early church really had to consider. They made some significant uh, decisions. They came together for a significant purpose, but they had to come to an understanding, a realization of why. And so I invite you this morning to stand for the reading of God's word. We're reading out of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. The last slide does not say that, but these are in fact from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. 
They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. A little bit of context for our passage this morning. We're looking at the, in the book of Acts, which is really this important history of Jesus' followers. Jesus has ascended to heaven. He's gone back to heaven. We see leaders kind of being raised up. Peter and Paul take on more significant roles within the church. And we see the church itself begin to be formed. Acts 1, Jesus has ascended. The disciples have regrouped. They've replaced Judas, which is kind of a significant thing. And then in Acts chapter 2, we see the day of Pentecost. It's this time of celebration. The Jews are reflecting on all that God has done, and the disciples are gathered together, and this really incredible thing happens. They're sitting together, and all of a sudden, there's the sound of a violent wind that comes rushing through the house. And there are these tongues of fire that come to rest on each of them. Can you imagine what that would be like if right now the doors blew open and tongues of fire came to rest on each of you? What, peace looking above, what an experience. What an incredible, incredible experience. Verse four says they were filled with the spirit and began to speak in other languages as the spirit enabled them. What's even more incredible than the fact that there's this big wind and there are these tongues of flame, but they begin to speak in languages that are not necessarily their normal languages. And all of these other Jewish people that have assembled from different places hear what they're saying in their native language. They begin to understand it without the need for any sort of translation. That is an incredible thing. There's probably a lot of explaining that you would want to have done if that were to happen. And so Peter gets up and he begins talking. He begins to explain that these, these men are not under the influence of adult beverages, right? He says, this is something miraculous. This is the spirit of God. The spirit of God has been poured out upon them. And he begins to quote the prophet Joel and David. He says, these are miracles that follow Christ's death and resurrection as is in accordance with God's plan. They show God's faithfulness. And even though Jesus has ascended to heaven, they show his continued presence with them. And the crowd then starts to ask, well, what do we do now? These tongues of flame, these languages, what do we do with all of this? And Peter tells them to repent and be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's in light of the moving of the Holy Spirit and Peter's encouragement and teaching here that about 3,000 people were baptized and became followers of Christ. And it's here that we find this new gathering, this new fellowship of believers in verse 42. Verse 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. 42 is a really important verse because it lays out these four really fundamental attributes of church life and community together. There's this idea of teaching. There's this idea of fellowship and common life together. There's the breaking of bread, both in terms of kind of common meals, but also very specifically the Lord's Supper. And there's also prayer. These are four purposeful activities that the early church from the very beginning decided to participate in. And they remain foundational to our church life today. We participate, we do all of these things today. We do them here, we do them in our homes, in our Bible studies. 
Now, it's important to note that they said that they were devoted to these things. These weren't just kind of casual actions or activities. They didn't do them just kind of when they had a little extra time. They were committed. They were devoted to these. These were steadfast and ongoing. Their engagement was very intentional. And we see the same thing in our church life today. These are intentional practices that we try very hard to make a priority. And we see that as these things are are taking place, there is great activity that follows. In verse 43, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Now, it's interesting to note that in in verse 43, it says everyone. In verse 44, it says all the believers. So there's the thought that perhaps it is not just the believers that are seeing all of these signs, but there are other people that are witnessing some of this as well. And the word that is used here communicates the sense of awe, but the word, the Greek word actually used, phobos, actually indicates an idea of fear, kind of this reverential awe, this really incredible, overwhelming sort of holy fear. It's the same word that's used in Matthew when Jesus walks on the water, and the disciples think that it's a spirit. It's the same word that's used in Luke chapter 2 when the angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds. It's the same word that is used here in this context as well. It's a word that communicates this reverential, holy awe and fear. And it seems like quite a fitting word for what they're experiencing, doesn't it? For any non-believer that was present, they were probably completely shocked by what was going on. For those that had come to believe, they probably had a bit more of an understanding. And yet at the same time, there was probably a bit of nervousness, uneasiness, as to what this was going to lead to, what, the, what were they going to be asked to do? What was going to be asked of them? How the early church must have felt about embarking upon such a purposeful endeavor, one that exposed them to new powerful signs and wonders and experiences must have been truly incredible. We probably all can relate to that feeling on some level. We may have had an occasion where the Lord has, has directed us in a particular way, and we know that this is what the Lord has for us. And yet there is this excitement and nervousness maybe all at once. We're excited because there's no doubt in our mind that this is where God is leading us, and yet it's going to require us to make some sacrifices, to maybe do things differently than we have in the past. I can think of a couple examples in my own life, when I got into ministry, it was a result of a couple different things, one of which was an experience doing relief work with Hurricane Katrina. Some of you have probably heard this story before, but I felt like God was really saying, I want you to go and be a part of the relief efforts. So about two and a half weeks after Hurricane Katrina hit, I booked a flight to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I found a church to volunteer at, and I went and I served those that had lost literally everything. And through that experience, I felt God calling me into full-time ministry. But boarding that plane, going to Baton Rouge, there was this excitement, but there was also a great deal of phobos, this idea that, what am I getting myself into? What, What is this going to look like? What is this going to require of me? I also felt it when I started my first full-time ministry job. My first full-time ministry job was down the road at New Life Church. I started out as elementary and then children's pastor, 22 years old, overseeing a children's ministry of 600 kids. I had a year and a half of part-time children's ministry experience. I was incredibly excited and incredibly overwhelmed by the thought of the task. And it was incredible. But we see this sort of 
movement here where God is doing incredible things that are unexpected, that are exciting, but also bring about this idea of reverential awe. And yet, this is exactly where God wanted them. Verses 44 and 45. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. To be a part of this fellowship, this group of people required a great deal of sacrifice. And there was this common purpose that brought them together. They weren't living individualistically, but in relationship and communion with one another. They were living with with an agape, an unconditional, sacrificial sort of love. And amongst the members of the early church, there was a high, high level of commitment to one another. There wasn't just lip service, but they actually were engaging together. There's this deep fellowship and shared participation. And everyone was was engaged for the sake of one another and for the sake of the collective church. Now, this passage, I think, sometimes makes people nervous. <laughs> like, they gave up everything. Ah. I don't think they necessarily gave up everything. We see later on that they still continued to meet in the homes of individuals. But they did give as was needed, and they gave sacrificially. Verse 45 talks about selling property. They were willing to do whatever they had to do, even if it came at great cost, in order to serve and love and care for the community. People were valued over possessions. This commitment to one another is also seen in the regular and purposeful fellowship. Verse 46 says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They met intentionally at the temple. They met in homes. They met all throughout the week in formal and in informal sorts of settings. They got together for meals and to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It was an intentional time together. We see that at the heart of their fellowship was this practice of breaking bread because it was so foundational and so essential to their community and what they were all about. There's this common purpose. In verse 47 we see this idea of a common purpose. The, the phraseology here, it says it's, it's sincere heart, but the Greek word really speaks more to a common purpose, something that is singular, something that is simplistic, very focused. And in verse 47, we see some of what that is. Verse 47, praise, praising God and enjoying the favor of all God's people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. <clears throat> The purpose and focus was on praising God and enjoying what he was doing amongst them. We see God was doing great things. He was adding to their community and bringing others to himself. He was honoring their dedication to them. This was a group of ordinary people. This wasn't a group of superstars. This wasn't a group of hotshots. This was a group of ordinary people. It was a group of people like you and I sitting together here in this room people who came together for this singular, simplistic, and common purpose. All of these things that we see the early church doing are wonderful. But in the same way that you and I have to wrestle with this idea of why we follow Christ, so too did these individuals have to consider why it would be worth joining this group. Why would it be worth making the sacrifices, the changes to their lifestyle, to their daily practices, Why would anybody be willing to do all of that? 
It's an important question. They're doing good things, but is just doing good things enough? About 10 years ago, I came across a gentleman by the name of Simon Sinek. Simon is a cultural anthropologist. He is a speaker and an author. And I came across a TED Talk that he gave actually up here in the Puget Sound. And he gave a TED Talk on what he calls the Golden Circle. He was looking at why really, really exceptional companies are really, really exceptional and what separates them from kind of your run-of-the-mill companies. He said that at the end of the day, most companies talk about what they do and to some degree, on some occasions, why they do it. But the difference between really exceptional organizations and companies and leaders is that the really exceptional ones don't start there. They don't start with the what and the how, but they start with the why. They start with the purpose, the underlying why behind the things that it is that they're doing. Those who repented and baptized didn't do, do so because it seemed like a fun, to do, fun thing to do. They didn't do it because they were bored. They didn't do it because uh, you know, they wanted to just give their belongings away. They did it because they understood this underlying why. Simon Sinek, he lays out, or he has a quote that has really stuck with me over the last 10 years. He says, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And these disciples, they bought in to this underlying why. It was so much more than all of these actions and activities. They did it because of an intentional and personal invitation to experience God's love. Peter says in, in verse, uh, verses 38 through 40, he tells them about this invitation. He shares this idea about how God wants to extend this, this grace to them, this undeserved grace, this grace that flows from a place of love. One of my favorite books in the Bible is 1 John. It's a short book, but it is truly one of my favorites. And I want to read a passage to you that when I think about what Peter might have said to the disciples, I think that this is the sort of thing that he might have told them. 1 John 4, 7 through 21. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is what he's talking about in verse 38. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. 
we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. I love what John writes here. And I can just imagine Peter sharing this with this first gathering of believers. Saying this is why you are to give up your material possessions. This is why we are to continue meeting together day after day. This is why we are to engage in prayer. This is why we come to the table for the Lord's Supper. John, 1 John three sixteen really shows exactly what the early church is doing. It says this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Here it is. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with action and in truth. The early church didn't become the church because of the activities or the community or the social status. They didn't do it because they needed more friends or wanted to clear out their closets and get rid of stuff. They didn't do it because they wanted more dinner parties. They did it because God is love. And they had seen and experienced this love manifest itself on, in Christ on the cross. They did it because they had witnessed God who is love send his spirit. They bought into the purpose. They bought into the why. And as a result, they were willing to go on mission with a vision that ultimately changed the face of the world. About three years ago, our staff got together with this what, how, and why in mind to really think about who we are as a church and craft statements that helped us to frame the ministry that we were doing in a way that was consistent with who God has called us to be and the place that he has called us to. So we wrote three statements to bring clarity around these three areas. The first two statements are the what and the how. The what is our mission statement. Our what is to help all people know God more deeply, love others more completely, and live life more fully. That is the what. The how of all of this is the vision statement, to live missional lives that communicate the transformative love of God through authentic relationships and acts of compassion. And it's within this framework, within this vision, that our 2020 vision is kind of taking shape. And we've been teasing this over the last several weeks, and we're so excited to share more of that with you in the weeks to come. But the really important question for us to wrestle with was the why. Why does any of this matter? Why does this mission matter? Why does this vision matter? And we summed it up in our purpose statement. We summed it up in a very, very simple statement that says this. Because of God's deep love for us, MBC exists to restore people into full life through Jesus Christ. That is why any of this matters because of God's deep love for us. It is for the same reason that the early church began meeting together for teaching and fellowship, for the breaking of bread and prayer, that we desire to help people know God more deeply, love others more completely, and live life more fully. By living missional lives that communicate the transformative love of God through authentic relationships 
and acts of compassion. The reason that we do what we do is God's love for us. Romans 5, 8 reminds us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our why, our purpose is the same as that of the very first believers that experienced the, the coming, the falling of the Holy Spirit. Over the last few weeks, you've heard us tease this 2020 vision. We're so excited to share that in September. We've been talking about the what, our mission. We've been talking about uh, the how, this vision to live more missionally. And there's some very specific um, things that we want to lay out in regards to that vision. But the why, the purpose, the underlying foundation is God's love. And because of God's deep love for us, we exist to restore people into full life through Jesus Christ. This is why we exist. This is why we do what we do. This is why we teach and we preach and we serve this community. This is why we invest in the next generation. This is why we go on mission. This is why we have men's ministry and women's ministry. This is why we encourage everyone to get in a small group. The reason we are so purposeful about these things is God's love. This community of faith, this church, is purposefully on mission with an exciting vision, all because God first loved us. Beginning of the message, I asked you, asked you to consider why do you follow Jesus? Or why are you considering following Jesus? And it's entirely possible that if you've thought about that, you've come up with a variety of different reasons. But I hope, I hope that at the heart of all of this, all of your reasons for wanting to follow Jesus you find God's deep, deep love. You see, you and I and Pastor Pete and the rest of this staff, our elders, our small group leaders, our children's ministry volunteers, youth ministry volunteers, mission council, deacons, trustees, care ministries, castle brigade, and on and on and on. We are on mission together. And it is not by accident. It is on purpose. And in the same way that the Holy Spirit was sent to the first church to empower them for great ministry, so too is the Holy Spirit present with us today, empowering us to reach this community and the world. And it is all because of God's love. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for today, and we thank you for your love. That you would take a group of ordinary people and extend your love and your grace, that you'd send your spirit to let us know that you are still with us, that you'd send your spirit to empower us and enable us to do good works that you have prepared in advance for us to do. Lord, we thank you for the fact that we are a part of this family, this community of believers, this fellowship, that we are able to hear teaching, that we are able to come to your table, Lord, that you're able to pray together, that we're able to do life together. What a joy and what a privilege it is. And Lord, as we go out on mission, let us never forget why it is that we are on mission. It's not just for fun. It's not just because we're bored, Lord. It's because you have first loved us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.